Welcome to the Modern Law Revolution podcast. This is the podcast featuring the happy and successful lawyers who are revolutionizing the practice of law in Colorado. And as always, we are brought to you, sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, JP Box. I'm a lawyer turned entrepreneur, consultant, and author. And I am the immediate past chair of the CBA's Modern Law Practice Initiative. And I am the other host, Erica Holmes, founder of EL Holmes Legal Solution, a modern law practice focusing on family law and attorney ethics and regulation. And I am the very first chair um, a while ago <laughs> of the CBA's uh, Modern Law Practice Initiative. Well, let's, let's start right there, Erica, because we've been the past uh, few months here singing the praises of the modern law revolution. Um, and as the inaugural chair of our initiative, you were there from the very start transitioning from a task force to this initiative that we've tried to spread out far and wide. How did that evolution come about from the task force that you were part of to this modern law revolution that you spearheaded for us? Well, in the beginning, um, way back in 2012, uh, the CBA started researching um, different ways to close the access to justice gap. Um, and that's why the Modest Means Task Force was formed at that time. And the task force, they did an amazing job um, investigating what other states were doing um, and figuring out what was being uh, most effective and then um, introducing those concepts to the Colorado legal community. Um, but as the aspirational goals of closing the justice to, um, access to justice gap um, started morphing into actual practice, uh, it became apparent that the term modest means was a misnomer uh, for two main reasons. Um, the first, being that modern representation is about more than just providing legal services at a reduced rate. Um, it's a actual type of law practice management that focuses on providing value, um, both financial and non-financial, um, to the client and the lawyer in, in, in innovative ways. So there's the win-win, um, which is the basis of modern law. Um, and as we've discussed in previous episodes, um, offering affordable fee structures is definitely a key component to um, modern law practice, but to make the practice truly sustainable, the modern lawyer has to consider how the legal services are provided and the most effective means to deliver those services. Um, so. Um, why the modest means um, name just wasn't covering everything that being a modern lawyer was about. Um, and so the second reason that we did the name change um, to the Modern Law Practice Initiative was that modest means was reinforcing the misperception that the access to justice gap was only comprised of those with low to moderately low incomes. The reality is that the um, justice gap is also comprised of people with middle to upper middle uh, class incomes. And um, together, these two segments of the population, um, they may not be able to afford be able to afford a, uh, to hire a traditional lawyer at the current rates, but they can definitely afford to pay something for their legal services. So um, with using alternative billing practices, that taps into this huge market, which is actually in Colorado, 60% of all civil litigants um, who are appearing without attorneys in court. Um, so with using alternative bi uh, billing practices, you can tap into this huge market um, and having, you know, a 
overabundance of clients um, makes us uh, profitable for lawyers. Again, the win-win. So for the, these two reasons, um, among the, all the other fabulous attributes about uh, modern rep, um, the Modern Law Practice Initiative was born. Excellent. And I've always loved how, you know, when I practiced law again, I was at small, big, medium-sized firms, and I thought I had seen everything, but I hadn't met uh, all the wonderful modern lawyers in Colorado and elsewhere throughout the country who are showing that a, there's a different practice model that works. Um, and this leads us into part two of our three-part series on revolutionizing how us lawyers bill for our services. Part one, if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. Uh, we have a special guest um, in that part one, Bob Glaves uh, from the Chicago Bar Foundation, who shared with us a wealth of knowledge and information about where the billable hour came from and the pitfalls that it's led us down. Um, part two today, we have uh, the good fortune of having Bob as our returning champion to speak with us about the optimistic, hopeful model of alternative billing arrangements and how those can really set us free from a lot of the pitfalls and evils of the billable hour. And last but not least, um, part three of this series focuses on the wonders of unbundling. So we'll be working through all three of those. Before we dive right into today's uh, focus on alternative billing, kind of want to take a step back and address perhaps the elephant in the room, which is, does alternative billing work? Is it a profitable model? And Erica, you had shared with me um, some information from a survey in 2019 from the Justice Entrepreneurs Project, um, which is a small business incubator in Chicago that helps newer lawyers start innovative, socially conscious practices serving lower and middle income Chicagoans. Um, and what I was surprised by is not only are they doing well, they're also doing good. And so how it captures both of those. So if you could kind of walk us through some of the results of that survey showing just how well those lawyers who have been coming up through the incubator are performing, embracing these alternative billing practices. Um, so, um, the facts and figures from the JEP, the Justice Entrepreneurs Project, um, in 2019, they had 56 JEP lawyers, um, and um, with 52 of those being network firms, so um, firms that they were... Uh, that have graduated from um, the JAP. Um, and the reason there was 56 attorneys and 52 firms was because there's a couple people that have partnered up from the JEP. So um, anyway, so with these attorneys, um, they served um, 3,747 clients, which 69% um, of that was in their target market, which is people earning generally between 150 to 400% of the federal poverty guideline. They generated $5.28 million in revenue um, in 2019. And um, I had the privilege of uh, actually speaking with uh, one of these attorneys in 2018. And I know that individually, um, her salary was as high as $180,000. 
that year. Um, and uh, going to other research that I've done ad hoc and both anecdotally, um, the mean salary for modern lawyers is about 97k a year. And um, but the sky is the limit. I used to say, you know, oh, well, you know, you're never going to do kind of like the big firm salaries when it comes to doing modern rep and alternate bill, alternative billing. Um, but I have found that there's individuals with revenue from $370,000 to $500,000 a year. Um, doing modern representation. So um, bringing it back to uh, Colorado and my own um, personal experience and research. Um, so when I started off um, doing this, uh, I was told in general that it takes a firm about 18 months to become profitable. And I was like, well, that's all well and good, but I have six months of savings and I'm out. Like, so it better be a lot <laughs> faster than that. And um, now granted, I had a very slim budget when I first started um, and my margin was very low. Um, but um, after three months, I didn't have to uh, be dipping into my savings anymore. Um, so it is something you can get going um, to, uh, to live on very quickly. Um, the range in Colorado um, with, the, um, with modern lawyers is between about 80K to 120K a year. Um, but keeping in mind, it really depends on how you want to structure your firm. Um, so again, on the personal level. Um, so I, um, this year, am um, projected to be toward the higher end of the range. Um, but that is um, with working, um, it turns out, uh, 3.9 hours a day on actual lawyer stuff, um, and then two hours a day on admin stuff. That's four weeks of vacation. I also take on two uh, uh, project safeguard cases, which are um, like state paid type cases a month. So I put that all into my salary range um, in terms of projecting how much I'm going to make on, um, on a month. So, so it really depends. Your salary really depends on how your going to structure your firm. So there's just a lot of variables in there, um, but you can definitely make money being a modern uh, lawyer. And I definitely make more than I did when I was an associate at a medium-sized firm. So those are the numbers, but I think you, of course, have to have even more numbers <laughs> or more information because you are the fact guy. Just info today. Um, one of the things I just wanted to stress was this is a lawyer-driven change towards alternative billing but it's also a client-driven necessity, I'd argue, for our for firms across Colorado, really across the country. Every year, Thomson Reuters, along with my alma mater, uh, Georgetown, comes out with a report on the state of the legal market. The 2018 report, I think, was its most urgent plea for change. And I just wanna read just a short snippet from their introduction. Consensual neglect seems a particularly apt description of the strategic posture of many, if not most, law firms in today's rapidly changing marketplace for legal services. Ignoring strong indicators that their old approaches to managing legal work, pricing, leveraging, staffing, technology, and client relationship are no longer working, they choose to double down on their current strategies rather than risking the change that would be required to effectively respond to evolving market conditions. And in lawyer speak, that is about as strident as possible of, you know, law firms, what we are providing, the services we are providing, people don't want this model. And it's hurting our bottom line as a profession from top to bottom. And so really having it, you know, an alternative billing model 
for your practice not only helps you as a lawyer and is profitable for you as a lawyer, but it's exactly what our clients want. And it's ludicrous not to pivot in that direction. So with that, Erica, I wanna jump into alternative billing methods and some of your experiences embracing this this model? Well, just as a recap of how I run my firm, after doing a a ton of research um, getting into this, I decided to go with doing um, only unbundled services and only on a flat fee basis. Now, it can look like full rep, um, but if you want it to be, it's basically like buying the whole menu for unbundled services. But I'm very excited because on my annual firm retreat um, last week, I came up with um, three new models um, if to add subscription billing to um, my uh, menu of what I am doing with my firm. So it's going to be unbundled with a flat fee basis and then also subscription billing for um, advice with family law and ethics checkup and uh, succession planning for lawyers. So I'm very excited to be incorporating now subscription billing. Excellent. Well, let's jump into our discussion with Bob Glaves. For those of you who haven't listened to episode one, Bob is the executive director of the Chicago Bar Foundation since October 1999. Previously, he had a nine-year run as a civil litigator, and his work today focuses on bringing Chicago's legal community together to improve access to justice for people in need and to make the legal system more fair and efficient for everyone. He also authors the Bob Servations blog, which full disclosure is addictive as you start reading it. So go ahead and check that out for more of Bob's observations, Bob Servations. Uh, Bob, welcome back. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So let's jump right in, kind of address the, the elephant in the room. How is it possible for lawyers to make money or at least have a comfortable lifestyle charging clients less than they may if they were on the billable hour treadmill? Well, that's uh, the big thing here, I think, is uh, when you use different types of fixed fee options, and Erica just mentioned a few, there's fixed fee like where you're doing a particular service on an unbundled basis, uh, maybe a whole case for a fixed fee. We'll talk a little bit about uh, you know when that works and when that doesn't, or the idea of like subscription fees. But One of the characteristics about all of those is there is certainty to the price you're giving the client. There's transparency to the price you're giving the client, but there's also certainty to you as the lawyer about collecting. Uh, And uh, you often can collect these upfront or in advance of the work you're doing or, you know, contemporaneous. Whereas with the bill of hour, you might be charging them more, but then you're getting into the whole thing that we talked about in part one, where you often get into disputes with the client about, did I really need to do all that things as a lawyer? Uh, can you give me a discount? Uh, or maybe I'm just not going to be able to collect all of it. I mean, that, all that happens. I'm sure it's happened to everybody here. And this, Not uh, me, because I don't do that. No, no, yeah. If you've ever done the billable hour, though, it's happened to you for sure, you know. And, it, and so you end up, you know, you may be billing some, charging more to the client and never collecting it. I think the other thing that happens is a lot of people charge more and get less clients. Uh, than they can when they are giving more certainty and more transparency to what they're charging them. So they can actually charge less and get more clients than they would if they were doing the other alternative. So that's in a small nutshell, just some of the ways you can can actually do pretty well here um, while, while actually being more value-based and more affordable to clients too. So with the um, JEP, what are the most common alternate 
billing models. Yeah, I, it's, it's great to hear you're starting to do subscription, Erica. I think that is becoming a really popular one, both for litigators. Uh, so if you've got litigation that's going to go on for an uncertain amount of time, um, a monthly subscription where you're paying as long as the litigation is going on at a certain rate is good for the client. Again, good for the lawyer because you're, you're sure to be getting your money every month. That's a common area of family law. The subscriptions for cases that are going to extend for a while in family law are common as well. That's a good area where that's becoming a common arrangement. And then the last one that um, that has proven to be pretty successful is with small businesses. So charging, uh, you know, one of the lawyers in the JEP called it a, um, you know, you're basically an outside general counsel for the small business on a uh, contract uh, basis, but a certain subscription rate every month. Small businesses are very much like middle class uh, people. They are on a tight budget. Um, uh, you know, most law firms are small businesses and so you can relate to that. You know, you're on a tight budget. So certainty and transparency of what you're going to pay and when is very important to them. And uh, that's proven to be a really good arrangement there. So I would say subscription overall is becoming a very common one. The fixed fee works great particularly for limited scope. I think everybody's doing different forms of unbundling or limited scope um, for different practice areas. And it also works for areas that um, there's more certainty as to what the, what is going to be involved in the case. So since the beginning of time, you know, DUI cases, you know, way before our modern law initiatives came about, um, DUI cases have almost always been on a flat fee here in um, in Illinois, the criminal lawyers that do those, because they're they're fairly straightforward what's going to be involved. You might have more hearings in some cases than others, and, but you know, from a process standpoint, uh, they have found a way to do it. And I think there are a lot of there are a lot more cases than where that was happening in the market. I think where you know, you're not going to have perfect certainty around it, but you can generalize over a you know period of time to know enough to be able to charge a fixed fee. So I would say um, um, those two and the other variation of that is um, fix what we call by is fixed fee by phase. So a lot of times you're not totally sure, especially in litigation or family law disputes, what the case is going to be about right at the beginning. So you're, you're, you're guessing a little bit about what's going to be involved in the legal issue, what's going to be in dispute. So a fixed fee by phase, a common way to do that is, uh, and again, it was great to hear Erica, you're doing this as a case assessment where you'll do an assessment and then maybe you charge a rate for the first six months based on what you mutually with the client think is going to be reasonable for that six months from a value standpoint to them and from what you're going to have to do as a lawyer. With the Express understanding that you're going to revisit that in three or six months. You know, it's six, three or six months are the common um, times, to, time frames to do that. Uh, and you're going to see it may be you're charging too much, you know, for what was involved, but it may be you weren't, there's much more going on and you can revisit it. But it's the client knows that going in, you know that going in. You may end up doing a lot more than you thought or a lot less than you thought over that three or six month span, but both sides had the certainty of the arrangement and the uh, trigger mechanism to, to revisit it at that point. So that um, sometimes is, is effective. Uh, and a lot of our criminal lawyers in the JP are, are using that fixed fee by phase where there'll be a certain fee for everything up until a trial and then a separate fee for the trial. Most cases don't end up going to trial, but if they're going to, that's a very different pricing situation than, you know, the rest of the case. So 
those are probably our three most common examples we're seeing. There's a few others that people use, but those are the three most common. Well, um, in terms of the other options that are out there, they're not as common, but um, there is um, fee shifting. And actually that was with the JEP lawyer that I spoke with in 2018 that was um, like really like $180,000 a year. Um, she was using um, the fee shifting, which is that there's hundreds of states and state and federal statutes um, that provide for attorney's fees if you're practicing in that area of the law. Um, and so the opposing party is actually the one that ends up you know, paying the fees. So there's fee shifting, there's um, success fees, which is um, an arrangement ahead of time um, with between the lawyer and client that if the lawyer can produce the result that the client is um, in seeking and usually like in less time that there would actually be um, an additional um, success um, fee that the, the lawyer would collect um, if they were able to do it in the shorter amount of time, but they would have the regular fee that they had worked out um, if it was in the regular amount of time. So, um, and then um, also doing um, sliding scale, but doing sliding, not just doing it at like a re reduced rate on an hourly basis. Um, so with the sliding scale, that is more referring more toward it being income-based, um, but, but charging a different amount based on that income. So for example, um, doing adoption cases. Um, there could be, I know a lawyer that does uh, for $1,000, $2,000, or $3,000, depending on what their income is. And the average um, ends up being around the 2000 which is what it covers for her, um, the cost and, and her profit. Um, and so the 1000 and the 3000 like basically offset each other. So, um, so sliding scale works um, in terms of just uh, looking at the incomes and making it variable on that. And, um, and then uh, there's always the ability to do a hybrid model, which is, you know, mixing things in, like I think you were alluding to with the litigation um, that, you know, part of it could be on fixed fee, part of it could be, you know, contingent, depending on, you know, where you are um, and what you're, you're doing in your case. So just to throw out even more possibilities um, for our listeners to think about. With all those possibilities, Bob, how do you go about advising someone who is interested in moving from the billable hour to an alternative billing model? Which model is right for, you know, an individual lawyer? Do you kind of focus on their practice area? Do you focus on their individual aspirations as a lawyer? How do you go about coaching somebody to say, okay, let's get you onto a model that makes sense for you? Yeah, well, it, it, you know, it's funny. You, you, you frame the question if you've already been using the bill of hour and you're trying to come off it. So the first thing we try to do, which is obviously impossible, but as much as possible is brainwash them. Um, <laughs> because everybody who's used the bill of hour then judges everything they do after that by the billable hours. So like, you know, they'll think in their mind, like, oh, this case I thought was going to take three hours and it took me five hours. I didn't charge enough, thinking of it purely from an hourly standpoint where trying to get that out of the, get that out of the system. And that takes a long time and a lot of thought, like to, to distinguish your time from your actual hard costs, you know, like, get, you know, get, get some concepts across, like your time, you know, at a certain point is, is, it's fungible to a degree. At a certain point, it's not. So you have you want to like understand how much time you're putting into things, but it's very different than your hard costs. You know, your hard costs of, you know, you, you if you're renting an office, you get paying your insurance, things like that. Those are hard costs that you got to pay every month. You want to pay yourself enough every month to live. 
those are hard costs, right? Those are very different than time. So, so the first element for sure is trying to get the whole thinking of the world in billable hours or increments of billable hours out of their system as much as we can. Now, time does, again, it does have a little bit of a role. What, what we've learned, you know, at the beginning, um, it depends a little bit on practice area, but uh, a good way to do it is to think about what, what, what kind of services you want to offer, you know, what areas of law and what kind of services you want to offer your clients and, and what you think is going to be valuable to them. So, you know, and here we'll just use an example because it's pretty hard to do in the abstract, but if you're an estate planning lawyer and you do some of the in-court administration work for estates, um, you're looking at what kind of like mix of uh, cases can you do over the course of a month that's going to bring you enough income to, to pay those hard costs and give you enough to, to live on and hopefully some profit that, you know, you will be able to take home and, and feel like you've made a decent living what kind of mix of cases could you do? You might be able to do like five simple wills uh, and uh, 10 more complex estate plans and maybe, you know, five cases in varying states of administration in the court. I'm just making these up right now, but over the course of a month and an average month, do you think you could do that within a, a normal work week? And so starting by thinking about like from a project management standpoint, what goes into those cases? What do you got to do to do those kind of cases? So you can figure out how many can you realistic, realistically do, still have time to do your administration, your marketing and, and, and have a life, you know, um, what, what's the, you know, what's the, what's the mix of those that's going to work. And then thinking about it from the value base to the client, you know, like a, a simple will, you might think it's worth, you know, $10,000 to them, but, you know, realistically that might be true actually for somebody who has a, a fair amount of money, <laughs> might easily be worth $10,000. But you know, for your average middle class consumer, if you're really truly doing a simple will, it's probably not. The more complex estate plan though is worth more to them. But you know, thinking about it from both sides though, how much can you realistically do in a month? And then what's gonna be a reasonable charge for these kind of services? And literally map it out a little bit. So like if the simple will was gonna be $500 each, the more complex estate plan was gonna be um, 1500 each and uh, the administration cases are going to be $1,000 a month. You know, I, now I just gave an example and I can't do the math, um, but I, uh, <laughs> my math is not that quick. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, you know, you may add up to, I think that's somewhere around $10,000 uh, for the month. So, uh, but, and, and if those are actually reasonable prices for what you feel like the value is to the client, that's the other side of this then you're off and running and you start testing it out. And realistically, when you're first starting out, you might be completely wrong about how much you thought you could do in a month, uh, how long some of these things were gonna take, how valuable the client really thought it was. So you really then have to just start evaluating along the way, uh, not, chart, not tracking your time by six minute increments, but just generally speaking, how much time are you putting into your cases and how much value do you feel like you're delivering to the client each time? So when you finish a case, it's great to just look at both of those things. Do you feel like you delivered the value you thought you should to the client for the price you gave them? And then did it seem reasonable what you did for the price, you know, what you thought going into it? You know, if you evaluate those two things, and it's always a good idea to survey clients too, just to see what, you know, were they happy? Uh, would they, you know, refer a friend, you know, things like that. At the end, you can find out a lot from surveying clients, you know, uh, the world sur surveys, you probably have all heard, you know, people usually are more prone to 
do those when they're really mad or really happy. But you know, the more you can get people to do that, um, uh, that's another way to to judge you know value because that that's part of the value, right? Are they satisfied? Do they feel like it was a good experience that they got from you? Will they recommend you to somebody else? That's the ultimate value. So it's it's kind of setting up a way to get started and then evaluating and adjusting along the way. You're going to be doing a lot of adapting along the way. Well, and it's really, um, to expand on what you're saying, it's an art and a science at the same time. So there, there is some mathematics um, behind it, which is simple mathematics um, for all of you out there that can't do math like me. Um, so you to get kind of like your base in terms of covering your expenses, but then the art is figuring out um, what you can realistically do every month, but also what the the value is to the client, what they're willing to pay for those services. And so that's where it gets kind of mushy. And I think that's where it freaks a lot of lawyers out when you talk about, you know, if, if you hit your mark or not in terms of, you know, a fixed fee, if you spent too much time on it or, or something like that. But three things to keep in mind is for one, even if you like quote unquote blow your fee with a fixed fee, you're still making money. It's not like you like lost money or anything like that. Um, and you're in the negative, you're still going to be collecting a fee. You're just not going to be collecting as high a fee as you possibly could so you are going to be making money and and even using terms like fixed fee they're not fixed forever they're just fixed for that case and so as you learn you can and you will learn you will adjust things as you go along so nothing is you know written in stone and then the final thing at least for me is I will blow my fee any day of the week and twice on Sunday instead of being on the billable hour so just remember like that um, as you're learning this and you're and you are nervous that your life is going to be so much better <laughs> just not doing the billable hour I would echo all of that, Erica. I think that's exactly right. And uh, yeah, there's just so much, it's such a better way to do it. It might help to give one other kind of example though, where the subscription, you know, fee sort of situation comes in too, because often those can be set in a way where you're going to revisit those a little bit like what I described earlier with the fixed fee by phase. You might do a subscription rate for the first three or six months at a certain amount. Again, just to see how that plays out in terms of what, you know, what a case is about. Like if you're talking about litigation or a small business or a family law dispute, you know, you know, in a family law dispute, a lot of times it's like, oh yeah, this is going to be an uncontested thing. You know, my spouse is fine. And then, you know, the first time you come into court, it's very different. Um, and spouse has a very different idea of what's quote unquote fine. And <laughs> And what they're going to fight about and all of a sudden you have a completely different case like if you've locked yourself in forever on a fixed fee that's not great but if you're on a subscription fee that you're going to revisit periodically and the client knows that so you say all right we're doing this by limited scope we're going to say we're fighting about x y and z and we're going to do it for this amount of money let's see how that works uh over three or six months make sure that's actually what we're fighting about and this seems reasonable to everybody but if it turns out to be different you're fighting about less maybe you're going to reduce that Fighting about more, you can up it. Uh, so to Erica's point, you can you can adjust things after cases as you learn how it went, or you can adjust even midstream if you've built that flexibility in um, your original client agreement. So. So now that we have everyone tantalized to try this um, and says, oh, the old, you know, this is going to be fantastic. I want to do it. Like, what, what would be like a first step? Like, how do you get your toe in the water to do this? Uh, just try it, right? You know, I mean, it, seriously, it's. Uh, but we do have a. I know you've got some resources out there to uh, in your modern law initiative. We've got a pricing toolkit. We're actually in the process of updating it. It's a little bit out of date, but it does include some of the basics of just figuring out like, again, some of the things we've already talked about, but are worth reiterating. 
understand the difference between your costs and your time. Because like Erica said, you, you built, built the completely wrong thing. It took you 10 times longer than you thought it was gonna, but you made some money on it no matter what. Um, and, uh, and it's more like, what did you learn from that experience going forward? So if, if that really happened that way, that it was 10 times harder than you thought, uh, you can go back and, and review that at that point. So difference between time and, and your fixed costs. Fixed costs are harder to do much about, right? You know, there's sometimes ways you can cut those, but you know, you should review those too. But if you're, if it took a lot longer, I think in the billable hour world, you're like, great. <laughs> you know, I, I got to bill more, assuming you could collect it. But it, when you're not billing by the hour, it took longer. You can think, okay, I got a couple ways I can look at this. One is I, uh, I shouldn't do this or I need to learn more about it. But the other thing you might learn is, you know, maybe I can automate some of these processes to make this the next time I do this take half as long. And then the next few times I do it, it'll take even less time. And, you know, so there's ways you can like make it more efficient. Uh, and you may just learn like, you know, for what the market will bear and what's a reasonable value to the client. Like this is not going to be a good area for me, but the only way to learn these things is to try it. So you just got to try it. Uh, and if you don't have somebody else who can brainwash for you, just think about how much, I mean, I've yet to hear anybody who loves the billable hour who uses it. So, uh, but try not to think of the world through that lens as you start to experiment, try to think about it more in these more macro ways of how's this working for me? How's this working for my clients? Um, going back to your first question, I think a lot of times and hopefully most times over time, you're going to find by charging a fixed transparent rate, you know, whether it's a fixed amount or a subscription or whatever it is, by doing this, you can charge them less, make more and be a hell of a lot happier. And what, what strikes me listening to, to you, Bob and Erica as well, is you're describing what great businesses do. You create a business plan that you think will work, but once you have the real life data on the ground of what your clients want and what your productivity level is, then you pivot in the direction that's most beneficial to you and to your clients as well. Uh, one last question for you, Bob. If you feel so inclined to have Coloradans reaching out to you uh, to continue these conversations, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, you, can, uh, you can call me at 312-554-1205 or you can email me. We just changed our email addresses. So it's bglaves at chicagobarfoundation.org. Well, thank you, Bob, so much for joining us again and um, sharing all your wisdom and your pricing toolkit <laughs> from your website, um, which, by the way, is also um, you guys have graciously let us link from the CBA's Modern Law Practice Initiative online community. There's also a link to the pricing toolkit through um, that website also. Um, JP, what can we expect from part three in our upcoming episode? So part three, now that we've laid the foundation of the evils of the billable hour, the wonderful world of alternative billing arrangements, part three will take a deep dive into unbundling, focusing on practical advice and tips to start incorporating that into your day-to-day -day practice. And now, Erica, we have, uh, we've launched our Start a Revolution helpline. Can you let our, our thousands of listeners, we're going to be calling the phones off the hooks, what our hotline is all about? Sure. Um, well, we're excited to um, have 
created this um, How to Start a Revolution helpline. So call, um, leave us your questions um, for the presenters or questions in general, um, and we will come up with the answers for you. Um, we will actually play your uh, recording on the next podcast um, and when we're supplying the answers. So um, please leave your name and your firm and organization um, so that everyone knows who their fellow revolutionaries are. So the phone number is 303-824-5399. Um, and that is also posted on the Modern Law Practice Initiative community page. Um, so uh, welcome to the revolution. You've got questions and we have answers. Thank you for joining the revolution.